Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. Grady, you know how in class how you're always telling us that writers make choices? And even though your book is really beautiful, I mean, amazingly beautiful, it's... And I could be wrong, but it just, it sort of reads in places like... You didn't really make any choices. At all. Today, as part of our Pull in Focus series, we'll be discussing Wonder Boys. Starring Michael Douglas, Francis McDormand, Tobey Maguire, Katie Holmes, and Robert Downey Jr. Directed by Curtis Hansen. So what was it about? Your book? What was the story? I don't know. But you got to know what it was about, right? If you didn't know what it was about, why were you writing? Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. I am a podcaster. It's Gally in Glasgow. And it's uh, Devlin in London. And thanks for joining us for another of our Pulling Focus series, where we pick films that we feel have maybe dropped out of the critical conversation, or maybe we're never in that conversation to start with, a bit overlooked, undervalued, or otherwise that we feel that you would be well-placed putting your eyeballs on. The first one was Ratcatcher, and that was your choice. It was. Um, so uh, this week you have returned the favour, and you have chosen for us uh, Wonder Boys, uh, Curtis Sampson's uh, 2000, kind of, we call it a dramedy. Nailing down the genre for this film is difficult, isn't it? Yeah, we'll go with dramedy. Yeah, that's a good one. All right, cool. Why are we watching Wonder Boys? I remember badgering you at university, because that's where I saw it. I, I, I originally saw Wonder Boys in 2004. I bought it on DVD because of Tobey Maguire. Uh, Spider-Man had come out in 2002 and I loved it. And I wanted to go back into his uh, back catalogue and see his previous performances. And there was this little film called Wonder Boys, which I'd never heard of, knew nothing about, and bought it, watched it, and completely fell in love with it. And one of the other reasons I loved the film is uh, I really am attracted to the central theme a film about a character struggling to move on from success, finding himself stuck in a rut. It kind of really spoke to me, which was weird because when I did see it, I was 18 and it's not like I'd had any success at all in my life. You know, we'd made uh, what mini shorts and a couple of mini documentaries at that point, Devlin at film um, school. I would imagine at that point we'd probably done a, a shot for shot recreation of a scene from uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance. If you yeah, there. probably. Oh yeah, we did. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, Jesus. That's oh, pretty weird. Yeah. That was weird, wasn't it? Why die? Oh, yeah, that was. I can't, what was the other film other than Die Hard with a Vengeance? There was another one. Oh, um, Intolerable Cruelty was the other one, yes. wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What yeah. weird films to pick, anyway. Very strange. Um, yeah, so it's not like I had any success to uh, to sort of try and strive yeah. to recreate. Um, but I also, at that point in my life, was constantly writing, constantly coming up with ideas, namely terrible ones, but, you know, stories, characters. And, uh, and on the surface, this film is about writing and about the art form and it, that kind of obviously really appealed to me but as we discuss it i will sort of disclose the other reasons why uh, this one has stuck with me what about you did you did you see it i can't remember i badgered you but i couldn't remember if i you'd actually watched it 
one year at film school? Um, no, so uh, uh, I remember the, um, the the conversations that we had. I remember this was a film that you really liked. I, I'm all but certain we did watch it because when I watched it back uh, in this last week, bits of it came back to me, like individual sequences, but with so little clarity that... I, it may as well have been my first watch, really. It is definitely one of those films that was... Uh, the people who knew liked it. It was nominated for a couple of Oscars, right? But it's certainly not a film that, that has um, much of a, a, a cultural footprint. No, I think only probably music aficionados will remember it because Bob Dylan won an Academy Award for it yeah. you know, for original song. But yeah, this one... No one went to see it, <laughs> even when it was even when it was released again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's so, a strange quirk about it, right? That um, they they released it. Uh, it was, I mean, it was a, a film that it wasn't. It didn't cost an insignificant amount of money to make. It was around fifty million something. So, and it's a well-funded film. It's a Scott Rudin produced, and it's a studio film. But um, yeah, they released it in cinemas twice. And the cumulative box office total was still, what, under 35 million, I think? Yeah, I mean, a, a dreadful flop Yeah, uh, for, for all concerned. And and for Curtis Hansen, uh, we'll, we may as well talk about him now. So this was the director who made L.A. Confidential mm. uh, prior to Wonder Boys. So he's coming off a... John, a terrible admission. Never seen oh, it. Oh, go on. What? Never seen LA Confidential. For those that are listening and follow the show, LA Confidential will be a throwback choice of mine. And when we get to it, you're going to have to sit and watch it. It's uh, it's a personal <laughs> favorite of mine. So I'm, I'm, sh- I'm sure I'm sure I I, I will like it. I'm, it's just one of those. It's just one of those ones. You know, those films that just sort of get away from you. Yeah, no, no. Of course, of course. I just thought you would have you would have seen it just from the fact that it was it's so popular. Uh, and it, I don't know, it was completely ubiquitous yeah. at the time we were at film school. It's possible that I was being a bit of a contrarian dick at the time. <laughs> I didn't want uh, to watch it because everyone told me I should. Yeah, now that doesn't sound like you, Devlin. <laughs> <laughs> Curtis Hansen, you know, if you weren't aware of his work, he'd made uh, The Hand That Rocked the Cradle. He made River Wild with Kevin Bacon and Meryl Streep. <laughs> oh, it's, a, it's a really good thriller. Uh, it's got John C. Ryle in it as well, yeah. isn't it? It's just one of those weird, uh, weird... I think it was 94. I, it was on Sky all the time. Yes. and uh, David Strathairn all... as well. First time I ever saw David Strathairn. And then he went on after LA Confidential. He made Wonder Boys, which absolutely flopped. No one went to see it. And then he went on to make uh, 8 Mile with uh, Eminem and uh, Brittany Murphy. He's got a real disparate bunch of films mm. you know you can't really categorize Curtis Hansen, has there been but... much going on uh, uh recently for him so uh no unfortunately uh he passed oh. in 2016 oh, I, I didn't know that uh, and so yeah yeah and I, I I'll be honest with you I've always been a big fan of his work uh, especially behind the camera just because a lot of directors will you can attribute them to a certain visual style but Curtis Hansen, at its core, I think, has always just been a storyteller. So the fact that his strength as a director is that you can throw pretty much whatever genre of film at him and he will produce, in my opinion, obviously only my opinion, a really mm. strong film. And uh, and that that is like your genre fair with The Hand That Rocks the Cradle and then River Wild to then an L.A. Confidential, which is this film noir. 
and then he's doing this weird yeah. dramedy Wonder Boys. Uh, it's you know, and then he goes off and does a a rap film with Eminem, uh, <laughs> which was which was far better than it had any right to be. He was a wonderful uh, filmmaker, and again, another one a bit like the Wonder Boys, who has sort of been forgotten, I guess. So it's mm. one of the reasons why I picked it. Yeah, nice. Also, uh, while we're talking about the the core creatives on this, so uh, the screenplay was um, by Steve Cloves. Yes, yes. Who was a bit of a Wonder Boy himself? Uh, wrote and directed the fabulous Baker Boys. Mm-hmm. And then yep. I, I believe just didn't follow it up until he wrote this screenplay. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And then once he'd done Wonder Boys, he exclusively just wrote the Harry Potters <laughs> and then didn't write another thing. Yeah, that's, that's that, a strange career. I mean, well, I think he would have made all the money in the world. <laughs> Devlin, would you, like, uh, would you like the plot for Wonder Boys? I would, very much so. Grady Tripp played by Michael Douglas, is a college professor and award-winning novelist whose latest book is Seven Years Overdue. Struggling to replicate his previous success, the former Wonder Boy has turned to marijuana to self-medicate. He's also having an affair with the university chancellor, Sarah Gaskell, played by Frances McDormand, who reveals she's pregnant with his child. Grady's students and his writing class include James Lear, played by Tobey Maguire, a brilliant young writer, unable to fit in, who is also contemplating suicide. Meanwhile, Grady's editor, Terry Crabtree, played by Robert Downey Jr., has arrived in town to see how the book is coming along and also attend the annual Wordfest held by the college. On this one weekend, Grady must start making choices. Will he continue to live in a drug-induced coma or is he ready to start a new chapter in his life? Very nice. Once I knew we were going to be watching this... And what it was about, it was about a, a middle-aged writer struggling, you know, under the weight of expectation and stuff. I was uh, a little worried that we were going to get a kind of one of those really smug screeds about like the, the sort of brawny men of letters and what a noble pursuit it is to, to chase the written word. And you've got these kind of, you know, especially America, there's like this sort of, all caps, great American literature myth where you've got like these superstar writers like uh, Updike and, and um, Philip Roth. And they seem to be very, very, very pleased with themselves. At the fact that they are these, you know, brawny intellectuals and it's always a bit infuriating. And uh, I was a little concerned that we were going to get something that indulged that. And I was glad to see that that was not the case with this no it's uh it's one of the reasons why uh i really appreciate it the, it, it works as a, a kind of a double bill feature uh if you will if you were to watch wonder boys and then follow it up with uh charlie kaufman's adaptation yeah both films about this one probably less so but adaptation very much about writing and then meta textually within the film a writer struggling to write going through the process yeah but they both films, and and if we concentrate on Wonder Boys, there doesn't seem to be there isn't that element of elitism. There isn't mm. the um, that self-importance isn't there. It, partly down to uh, the character of Grady himself, the way that he's uh, portrayed, yeah. but also within the film, uh, there is one scene in particular, uh, and we'll put the clip in where they pretty much signpost that this is not going to be a film 
about the uh, about the struggles of the yeah. great American writer, and it comes from uh, from Rip Torn. You may know him from <laughs> Men in Black, uh, where he plays Zed, and in this film he plays Q, who's this uh, successful writer who uh, bangs out a novel every eighteen months, and Grady absolutely can't stand him because he's obviously struggling with writer's block. And he starts his opening speech at the Wordfest like this. I am a writer. As a writer, you learn that everyone you meet has a story. Every bartender, every taxi driver has an idea that would make a great book. Presumably each of you has an idea. But how do you get from there to here? What is the bridge? from the water's edge of inspiration to the far shore of accomplishment. <laughs> yeah, see, that's great. That was, um, that's exactly the sort of thing I was thinking. Um, uh, this is a bit of a tangent, but I remember um, many years ago, uh, I, I bunked off work one day. Um, I was working summers at a theme park, and I took off one day and just, like, and just went into, uh, do you know Rippon? A tiny, a tiny wee city in the uh, in North Yorkshire. So I went into Ripon and there was a bookshop, and uh, I was just kind of wasting the day away because I couldn't be asked going to work. Um, I went to this bookshop and I saw uh, Don DeLillo's Underworld, and it stood out because it was just like super gritty, like a uh, black spine with big silver lettering up it. And I'd heard the name Don DeLillo in a uh, in a Connor Oberst song of all things. Um, and I was reading the blurb on the back and it was, you know, all these adjectives about serious and seminal and stuff. I started reading it. And even then, I remember thinking this is verging on self-parody. Like his, his lead character was this uh, tremendously virile 50-something, but could still win in a fist fight. And he had like four mistresses and he was obviously so terribly torn up inside about it but of course would still just fuck anything and i just remember thinking that this is this is wank so what i liked about this was uh they just it was all um yeah it it was a a, the character of grady was was very different than what i expected and uh i mean he he does to be fair um get a lot of uh female attention throughout the film he does uh but i think that is kind of the film playing with the star persona of Michael Douglas and Michael Douglas we may as well talk about him he's the star of the film uh, and he is completely stripped of any vanity uh, certainly for the majority of the film uh, and there's a one sequence at the end well which we will discuss but that trait of him being the most unluckiest man <laughs> in Hollywood with women kind of still um it, it it adds to the humor for the film because he's been married three times. And I think they make mention that they're always young yeah. and attractive women, but it also plays into that stereotype as well of professors on campus and, and that whole, um, Oh yeah. The, the, kind of the thing, pretty young it? grad student who, well, not even grad student, undergraduate student who's living in his house. And yeah, yeah. Um, it's all set up really, really nicely in that first scene. It's very, very, very quick as a setup. But, but like I said, because he's disheveled, you know, he's got his hair's completely messed up. He's got this, you know, five o'clock shadow. Those bloody glasses and that scarf. Yeah. 
and they they strip away whatever layers he has. So even at the start, you know, he's still got a kind of uh, a bit of a college professor look. You know, his hair's kind of neat-ish, you know, or, or, you know, he could be like a sort of a bit of a, a stereotype kind of handsome older intellectual, but they just strip that away throughout the film. Um, and at the end of it, he's just a limping, shambling mess in a in a dirty pink cardigan. No, no, even <laughs> exactly. a cardigan bathroom. Uh, maybe audiences weren't ready to see Michael Douglas this way, coming out of the 90s where, like I said, he was forever being uh, embroiled in dangerous mm. situations with women. But he was also, he was, he was such like the alpha of the 80s and yes, 90s. Exactly, yeah. No matter what, you know, he was like a, the sweater-wearing sex cop from Basic Instinct and basically his dick was always getting him in trouble. I uh, I reached out on onto Twitter because I wanted to know what people thought of the film and uh, half of the people that got back to me had never seen it. And then we did get one response. They mentioned that they, they didn't really enjoy Douglas in the role because they just felt that his persona... I mean, I'm reading between the lines here because it was only in a, in a tweet, but uh, I guess it's his persona and that kind of male bravado, alpha male that he represents uh, was a was a stumbling block in the film. But, I mean, do you agree with that, Devs? That's, that's an interesting take on it. I would say that um, I think as the character plays out on screen, obviously you can't, like, the whole point of, of casting movie stars is that they do bring baggage with them. Um, I think it really works. Like, I think he's great. Because he's such a strange protagonist, um, I mean, the, the plot of the film, as you said, is is of uh, a guy who, um, well, he has the opposite of writer's block, which is that he just can't stop writing. It's later, it's later exactly, revealed that yeah. his uh, his follow-up uh, novel is currently about 2,500 pages deep with no sign of, of ending. Um, and that he spends the rest <laughs> of his time just kind of in a vague marijuana haze. So you do need somebody who's very magnetic, who's going to pull that off. Otherwise, your film just becomes too aimless. It could just be a series of, of vignettes that go nowhere. The sort of vulnerability that he had, um, there's, there is an arrogance there, but it's a kind of like a wounded pride arrogance, which makes him very endearing. He makes comments every now and again that you're like, oh, it just makes him human. It's not Michael Douglas as we have seen mm. before, and it's not Michael Douglas in Romance in the Stone, but he has got that. He, he does have a comedic element, so he's able to bring both the dramatic element to the role and also he's able to give looks, gestures, and even line delivery that's just perfectly on point when it comes down to those comedic beats in the film. And uh, I think he's really good in the film. I, I understand because he really did... Uh, he wanted to be in the film. He championed mm. the film. So I can understand how, you, from the outside looking in, you could maybe say that this appeared to be almost a vanity project, yeah. but... It's definitely, I mean, it's definitely a showcase. He he wanted this role for yes, himself, but, but then I guess that's all actors, right? I mean, they all want to be able to show what they can do. And that's all actors in character-driven pieces. Yeah. You know, Michael Douglas in Basic Instinct is there to fulfill a function in a very utilitarian role whereby he is this archetype. In this film, he's able to flex, isn't he? He's able to show different shades yeah. and... And that's what we expect from character-driven films. That's a, that's a really good point, I guess, because, yeah, they, he has been being used, uh, especially towards the the later part of the 90s, you know, like a perfect murder needs, you know, uh, uh, a cold, calculating, rich 
Arsehole. Before Perfect Murder, yeah. it was the game. Again, he's playing the same... It's, that's Michael yeah, Douglas yeah. in this film. Uh, the compliment I can give him is that I forgot I was watching Michael Douglas about 10 minutes in. The other thing that I really like, and I, I give, give great credit to Hanson for this, is one of the reasons why I enjoy these types of films is I do love ensemble mm. casts. And in this film, you've got a great one. And what I like about what Hanson does, and, and the casting director in particular, is that you get these different actors at different levels of status. So we have Michael Douglas and Francis McDormand, which you would class in that kind of established A-list. I mean, and maybe not McDormand, but she's definitely got credibility. Everyone knows her from Fargo. The same year that Wonder Boys comes out, Almost Famous is released, and she's just phenomenal in that. Yeah, she really so is. She's, she's, she's a stellar actress that when you see Francis McDormand, you know, you know she, she's, uh, she's there to play. And then you've got these rising stars in Tobey Maguire and Katie Holmes, who are both obviously trying to find a way into you know, the Hollywood machine. And then you have this, this wonderful performance by Robert Downey Jr., who at the time, we don't need to get into his, his troubles, but yeah. you know, was, had, his, had his problems in Hollywood with drugs and with the law. And, he's, and everyone's there to play. And within the whole film, I never get the sense that we're, we're here to prop up Michael Douglas. It's, a, it's an ensemble cast and everyone's, everyone's feeding off each other yeah. as they should be. And the interplay within all the characters just feels really natural. And I guess that's, like I say, it's one of the things that I really enjoy about it. Yeah, that's, that's great. And it's, it's kind of showcased very early on. And as a, as a setup for a scenario it's really quick. You have that first sequence of um, establishing who Grady Tripp is. You also establish James very quickly. James Lear is, is Toby Maguire's character where he's this, like a, almost like a caricature Adams family-esque kook. Yeah. yeah. It reminded me a little bit of, um, oh, what's his surname? forgotten the actor's name but the character in american beauty i was thinking exactly the same because he kind of looks like him as well Wes Bentley. yeah he kind of looked like him yes that's it yeah yeah it was a real type around yeah. around this era wasn't there the sort of tail end of the 90s yeah. early 2000s the the and and what i like is that like Wes bentley's character is is left as a sort of mystery and that's not aged particularly well whereas um the more you get to spend time with james lear as a character and the more, you know, this sort of tortured artist's look sort of gets really um, muddled by the, his compulsive lying and uh, and his, his fantasy, creating this sort of fantasy of, a, of, of torturing, of the tortured artist around himself. Well, that's it. He feels like a character that's um, desperately living in the, you know desperately living in the past yeah he's got, he's got this fascination with uh iconography mm. uh, marilyn monroe and he knows all the hollywood suicides yeah, that yeah. happened and did you he, um he, he, sorry just really 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 quickly um uh it's a bit of a sidebar but i was also going to say earlier that um there's a great look to this film and it's really unusual oh, yeah. it's yeah. uh yeah. um dante spinotti the uh cinematographer and it used a lot of um uh, split diopters and a lot of very deep focus. So mm-hmm. even the split yeah. diopter shots of you got a, 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 either a, well, I guess a mid long shot of your characters in the background. And you've got a very close up in the foreground with the, the frame split between the two. 
Um, yeah. And I didn't know whether maybe like James's fascination with kind of melodramatic 1940s, 1950s American cinema, I don't know whether that informed the look at all. I, I, I don't know, because otherwise I couldn't, as, as beautiful as it looked, I was trying to work out why they were using those specific um, uh, visual tricks. I'll be honest, I just took it as, because um, I remember the first one is when James is sat in the class with uh, yes. with Grady and uh, what's uh, what's Katie Holmes' character? Uh, Hannah. Hannah, yes. And um, I just saw it as we're, we're right in his face, aren't we? Yeah. And, and it's that isolation in and amongst his peers because uh, they're, they're in this writing class. And I think uh, Grady sets it up like, okay, let's analyze yeah. James's work and... Let's not go down. I mean, God, in 2019, he'd get hammered even further. But it's like, you know, let's be critical, constructive. And they absolutely berate him. I think one of them says, like, what is it with you bloody <laughs> What is it with you Catholics? <laughs> Which is it's a really good line. Yeah, it's a great line. I just took it as that was us in his perspective. And I think yeah. even later on, when Q does his I am a writer, we have the same shot where yeah. he's looking out, but it's, I, I just took it as the perspective of the character that's speaking in, in uh, cause I think it happens again with Crabtree as well. You're right. There's a couple of, throughout yeah, the whole there's, film. There's a few yeah. of them. It's, uh, it may just be that it's, it's efficient and attractive framing. I said before that, uh, Hanson doesn't necessarily have a visual style as such that is recognizable, Yeah, but it doesn't mean that the film doesn't have any flair. I mean, the, the, the external scenes, uh, one in particular, when, uh, Michael Douglas is Grady goes outside for a for a doobie and uh, and he runs into James who at this point in the in the film is essentially about to commit suicide or certainly contemplating it. He's got a gun in his hand. It's yeah. beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Like, there's the the snow and the 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 high contrast lighting just looks great. Well, like you said, it's, it's definitely one of those. Um, it's a thing that that we've talked about, and I'm sure. It's something that a lot of people have talked about this this idea of the um the well the the well funded adult Hollywood movie that sort of has diminished in uh you know you don't see many films like this where clearly quite a lot of money has still been spent on it, even though it's just a film largely about adult characters talking yeah i um I've got to say I do miss these uh, the decline in that mid tier character-driven piece yeah they still get released i know they do but they don't they don't get the exposure and they don't get the you know they just audiences very rarely find them i guess and it it takes a it takes like a a robert downey jr i mean i'm hoping you know i'm not saying that we're going to make any difference with this but i'm hoping that people have gone back to watch wonder boys because we have iron man i went to see it because we have spider-man yeah uh, in Tobey Maguire and, and well if you like Ant-Man and the Wasp and all that kind of stuff you've got Harold Pym in yeah, Michael yeah. Douglas so it's weird how you know you can play this five degrees of Kevin Bacon into a superhero film but these types of character driven pieces I just think they give a real platform for the actors that then will go on to be our heroes and our villains in in the kind of bigger blockbuster fair, but there is a place for these films, especially one that that isn't too like self consciously serious and weighty. I think that's that's the other thing that you end up like adult films now just has to mean like serious films, and serious films tend to come off, I think, a bit 
disingenuous if you know if that's your your thought process going into it it's like i'm gonna make a serious film i kind of feel like you end up with something that's just a bit rote like this is it's allowed to be playful leonardo dicaprio has fallen into that category a few times hasn't it where he's he's sort of moved away from uh from something that's quite fun and playful to no, I'm I'm making a serious film today, folks. So watch yeah. me act. For God's sake, try not to have any fun. <laughs> uh, but that's one of the things that I also love about the film. And please challenge me, Devlin, because I don't want this to be a loving. Um, I'm here to simply present my case. But one of the things I really like is the classical farce yeah. structure of the story. So it deals with deeply dark subject matter and at the start of the film we we see it we have james who's contemplating suicide we have grady who is struggling with uh trying to replicate success and is kind of in a in a sort of pseudo mini quasi depression we have uh sarah who's in a loveless marriage pregnant with with a man who is in a drug fueled uh induced yeah. coma and we have Hannah, who's lusting over a professor, but is, is you know struggling to. Yeah, she's she's almost kind of wanting him to to take that plunge. And then we have uh, Crabtree, Robert Downey Jr.'s character, who is basically sexually confused, isn't he? He's just well, I think he, he seems to be kind of sexually omnivorous, but um, but his yeah. uh, and his thing and, is and... is that his success is completely tied to that of Grady. He's not creating he's reliant on on grady coming up with something and they refer to it in the film where he says you know people just look at me like i don't even work there yeah. anymore and and that's how i connected his um you know that sexual not in confusion but just the fact that he's basically trying to connect with anybody mm-hmm. and it's it's almost like he connects with anybody that believes he's still got influence yeah uh, so the um the transvestite that he meets on the plane He's he's clearly told uh, her all about Grady and the and by the way I'm going to mention it now just in case I forget I love the titles in this oh film. Oh my god! Yeah. So Grady's book, yeah. it's fucking yeah. perfect. Grady's book is called the uh, the arsonist's it's daughter. So good. God, that sounds like a great well, book. It gets funnier it? every time somebody <laughs> says it because it becomes more and more absurd. Because it's it's perfect. It's it's the perfect kind of prestige bullshit that, that these people were talking about. Yeah, he gets one person goes up to him and says, uh, "Yeah, I've got uh, arsonist daughter in my um, in my post grad yeah, yeah. uh, class, seven years in a row. Great book. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's wonderful stuff." This is uh, uh, something that will come up um, in in a in a few weeks or whenever we get around to uh, speaking about Ghost World. There's some magnificent fake yes. titles in Ghost World as well. I, I, oh yeah, there are. Yeah, no, we'll save that. I for think that it's episode, a real but, talent. But yeah, you've got. The, it really is to come up with like the perfect satirical title. You know, James's book is called The Love Parade. And I think, um, what's, what's Q's book called? I can't remember. I'm not sure if we got any Q's of his book, titles, which is a real shame. That is a shame. What's the, oh, um, what's the doctor's book called? Is it the, yeah, the, um, the, uh, yeah. uh Sarah's husband, when he's finally, you know, reveals the title of his, uh, his book about the mythos behind, uh, Joe DiMaggio and uh, Marilyn Monroe, and it's called. It's so good. The Last American was it? The Last American Marriage. 
Yep, it is. <laughs> it's so good because of course, like that was around that time. Do you remember everything like American Beauty? Everything was just I'll put American at the start of it, and it'll make mm-hmm. it sound important. Uh, and just to go back, Devlin, to that farce structure. Yes. Uh, so, for those of you who are not aware of what a farce is, it's, it's like a comic dramatic piece that uses highly improbable situations, stereotyped characters, extravagant exaggeration, and violent horseplay. That is the Definitive. Violent horseplay, what a phrase. I know, yeah. Well, there is some violent horseplay. It doesn't yeah, involve a horse. But, that's great. Um, but one of the things that uh, that I did in my research for this was uh, I wanted to, to sort of compare how to write a farce and how it fits in with Wonder Boys. And I found an article in 2014 by Ray Cooney, and he put out six rules of a farce. I'm not going to go through all six of them, but the, the top two was plots and characters. And one of the things he talks about in the plot is that a farce is akin to a tragedy, and that in itself will provide itself into being a comedy. And that's exactly what happens in Wonder Boys, because we start off, like I said, with this dark subject matter. Mm. And then as the film goes along, it ramps up and it gets it gets as farcical as it can get. And yeah. the other thing that he mentions is how characters need to be authentic, which in Wonder Boys, I think they are. You know, you feel that Grady is a professor. You feel like... Um, Sarah is a chancellor of a college. Yeah. yeah, all these all these characters feel real, but then the situations that they are placed in, they can't deal with, and they are just absurd. And that is what drives the comedy. Also, it, kick, it kicks off with a, with a death, or like the the inciting incident is a death, which is also something that happens a lot in, in yeah fast films, where uh, uh, at the end of a cocktail party, uh, Grady is being attacked by uh, the chancellor's uh, dog. Who hates him because he's having a, his blind dog <laughs> called Poe. But he knows. <laughs> and he savages his ankle quite badly, at which point James reveals that the, the gun he's been holding is not the souvenir prop he said it was. And he pops that dog twice. And then, and yeah. now you've got a dead dog on your hands. And then what, what I love is just like how the, the plot just sort of shambles. You know, it really reminded me of, um, not really, but I, somewhat reminded me of like something like the big Lebowski. Yes. Yeah. The way it has, uh, uh, you know, there's a plot that you can picture in your head as to how this plot should play out. And it just never does. It goes off on tangents and characters make weird decisions or non-decisions and stuff just happens to them. And where you think that, you know, the, the dead dog is going to, there's going to be shenanigans. It's like, it just, it just sits in the back of the car. Yeah, you just can never, you just never <laughs> can be bothered to deal with it, which is pretty incredible. Yeah, I think it really works as a, like I say, as a farce. And you're right about that plot because I think you mentioned it earlier. Grady is extremely passive. Yeah, uh, and as a as a protagonist, he very he takes action, but it's act, it's always reaction as opposed to you know proaction. He's never he's never thinking two steps ahead. He's always just as you said, stumbling into the next situation. Yeah. Uh, one of the one of the bits that I really like about the film is the depiction of his relationship with, with Sarah. Uh, you know, I'm not going to get on my high horse about it, but we very rarely see uh, sort of older people. And now I am a bit older. We never rarely see relationships uh, in films with older characters. You know, it's, yeah. it always tends to be idealized, you know, oh, that's mother and father over there they're in a loving relationship and have been for 35 years you never really get the complications that you get in wonder boys where we have an affair and one of the characters is basically a 
an old adolescent who can't get out of college, yeah. literally and metaphorically. And then we have, you know, this woman of great stature and status who is pregnant with another man's child. And how do they deal with these complications? And I do love their, their interplay because it is playful. It is fun. And at times it, it looks like a teen romantic comedy the bit where he buys her this balloon that just says thinking of you <laughs> and yeah. it's just like what what world do you think that would work yeah what world do you think that would work but that's that's the character he's he's got yeah. muddled thinking he's not like you say he's constantly uh, in a state of paralysis because of his 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 marijuana use and where he's at in life and yeah yeah, I just think you don't really get that very often. And when you do, yeah. it tends to be old jokes like, oh, I'll take off my granny pants. And you don't get any of that. It reminds me of, you know, there was a, a bit of a, a stint of these kind of older, like older actors being given a chance to, to go back and, and indulge in the rom-com tropes. Uh, uh, I think like Nora Ephron wrote at least some of them. Uh, there was one with, I think, Alec Baldwin that ring a bell yeah yeah i just can't think of it because it would have you know, washed over me yeah they all had they all had really similar titles that didn't really mean anything despite the the presence of of you know someone like a, a genre master like Nora efron i don't there's something about the like you say the, the depiction of um grady and sarah's relationship is is really sweet and they don't get a whole lot of screen time together no they don't it's, it's credit to mcdormand really because yeah. she fills in the gaps in her backstory with some of her looks and some of her line delivery. And just, she's just such a stellar performer that yeah. you, you understand. I, I guess the only thing that I, I never really get, and but I suppose the film is from Grey's perspective. He talks about her love of the written word and him being uh, the producer of her, you know, of her chosen drug. But you never really understand what she sees in him at that point in his life. And I guess yeah. you just have to accept that we don't really get that, but everything else, McDormand fills in those gaps, and and it's the same with uh, it's the same with Downey Jr. You know, we don't really get that many moments with him, yeah. But when we do, he is so so good. Uh, one of the scenes that I wanted to highlight was because um, only because it reminds me, and I'll I'll, I'll explain after the clip, uh, but there's but I'll just set it up. Uh, Grady and uh, Crabtree are in a bar, and they are looking over. And James is comatose because they he's been taking some of Crabtree's uh, is it is that cocodamol or something like that? He's yeah, taken. they just said uh, um, again. That's that's a nice little bit of um, wrapping the real life Downey Junior. Oh his yeah, character. <laughs> always yeah. Um, but they're in a bar and they look over and they can see a kind of peculiar uh, sort of black man and they immediately come up with this backstory and they start uh, playing with what the fictitious backstory might be. Listen to the clip. It's great. Oh my goodness. Do you see what I see? You're there. Let's go. You first. President of the James Brown Hair Club for Men. He's a boxer, a flyweight. No, no, no. He's a jockey. His name is Curtis. Curtis Hardapple. Well, not Curtis. Okay, well, Vernon. Vernon Hardapple. The scars are from... A horse. He fell during a race. He got trampled. He's addicted to painkillers. Yeah, he can't even piss standing up anymore. Lives with his mother. That's right. He's got a, a younger brother who uh, who's, a, who's a groom named Claudel, yeah. and his mother blames Vernon for Claudel's death. Right? <laughs> because 
Because, uh, because, because why, right? Because, 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 because um, all right. He was killed when a gangster named Freddy Nostrils tried to shoot his favorite horse. Waddell took the bullet himself. Vernon, over there, was in on the hit. That was good. Yeah, he heard everything we said. Yeah, one of the things that uh, I like about it is it kind of reminded me when I was in my early teens and I used to go to the shopping centre because I didn't have any money and me and my mates would just sit there and people watch and we would kind of do this very thing where you would come up with like a backstory or where they've come from, where they're going. And and in this scene that we've just heard, you can see that Grady is rediscovering that creative those creative juices. Yeah. But it also informs us about James and and what a prestigious talent he is because he's able to come up with this wonderful ending that just takes them both back and they kind of go, oh, wow, yeah, that's a pretty good ending. Yeah, yeah and it's an interesting one for, um, you'd, you'd call this part of the, um, the Downey Jr. wilderness years. Uh, on his, I, I would say his, his big comeback probably kicked off five years later. When yeah, kiss, kiss, bam, bang, probably. And there is a scene in that where he bonds with uh, Michelle Monaghan's character doing something very similar, which is that they, they're looking around the party and making fun of everyone. Do you remember the uh, yep. Native American yep. Joe Pesci? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, weird was that when that scene started, that was the first thing that came into my head because it's the same, you know, it's also a Downey Jr. thing. And I don't know, maybe Shane Black was paying attention. Well, he, he he's a, he's another one who's got really good comedic timing. I mean, the the bit at the end when he's driving or trying to drive the car with the the, <laughs> in the passenger seat, and then when the when the pages just spill out into the wind and he's trying to grab them. I mean, you can't help but just uh, find that like utterly hilarious. He's just yeah. um, he's just a, a really good actor, and I I know that he's defined now by playing Iron Man and being Tony Stark, but. He really has got more to his game. And there's a reason why we all love him as Iron Man. Yeah. but Because he brings, it, again, he brings shades to it. And uh, yeah. Shane Black, especially in, in the third one, brought back a lot of the the vulnerability and the weirdness, and, uh, which is why it's, I mean, of, of most of the, certainly of the Iron Man series is my favorite of the three of them. Discussed what we really like about it, but let's let's go into the things that maybe it didn't do so well. And one of them is... I would say fundamentally why no one went to see this film. The marketing department for this film need, well, I hope they all got sacked because I have the, uh, I have the copy of the DVD and the front image yeah. is dreadful. It looks like a Gary Marshall film. So it looks like a standard Gary Marshall yeah. rom-com, you know, in, in the guise of Valentine's Day, dreadful. And this was their, this was their second go around because the, the first one was even worse. The, did you see the, the original poster was that uh, it was like a real tight close-up on uh, on Michael Douglas. And he's like, he looks like Robin Williams. He's got the same kind of winsome grin as like one of the the late oh, career kind of yeah. quite saccharine Robin Williams yeah, stuff. Yeah, Patch Adams. Yeah. No, yeah, he's got a Patch Adams face <laughs> on. And that is absolutely not what this film is. I guess uh, I had one other uh, theory that I was going to, pitched you about maybe whether why this film might not have hit the way you would have hoped that it did um you said uh when you're introducing it that this one really chimes with you because at the time you were just starting film school and you're writing a lot and you're creating a lot 
Um, and I guess films like this, uh, films like this that are about the struggles of creation, like we say, it, we did say that it's not taking it super seriously, but it is also the central point of the film, like the act of creation, as much mm-hmm. as it's gently being satirized, is still being celebrated. Oh yeah, no, yeah. Um, do you think that that's something that that most audiences chime with, or do you think that that's something that does potentially narrow your audience um, uh, participation or um, what's the word uh, uh, engagement? Engage, yeah, yeah, yeah. That they, wow. you know, that they don't. That maybe it's it's a, a specific type of person who who sees that as an important thing to do, you know, to create and the, the, you know, the, the, the trials and tribulations that come along with it and the way people will sort of fuck their lives up in order (laughs) or large ways in order to create something. And that maybe uh, people who don't have that same drive might just think it comes off as silly or like we said, indulgent. Uh, No, it's, you know what? That's interesting. I, I never looked at it as, being literally about creation i took right. the i i actually took the the writing as a metaphor for whatever you want it to be so when when grady's talking about trying to regain some form of success yeah success at the end of the film is actually him being with the right person and him yeah. starting a family we actually it's in, it's inferred that the book that he's writing is the book of his troubles and turmoils that we've just gone through in the film, but it's yeah. never, you know, it's not, it's only implied. I, I very much took it as a metaphor for success as whatever you want to impart on it. So this whole idea of being a one hit wonder, you know, yeah. in, in all guises of our life, I know, I know creatively you're thinking, you think music, you think movies, you know, you think how many how many songs have been written by uh, artists that have had like one hit wonders? You know, we had the Cotton Eye Joe <laughs> outro music for um, for the Seven Brides for Seven Brothers episode. I don't think they wrote another song. So you know, there's a the one hit wonder. That's also uh, <laughs> scarred their lives going forward. But they'll Poss- never quite top the tremendous achievement that they made. Possibly, but I I just took it as a metaphor for where yeah. you wanted it to be. You know, oh, no, for some, right. yeah, for some people, success might be getting into an organization that you've always uh, aspired to get into, and then once you're there, what do you do? What's the next level? You know, where's your glass ceiling? But I suppose you're right. If you if you read the film as being about writing or about the creative process, then mm. maybe in 2000 people were a little less interested in that idea. But but I think in 2019, with people, you know, we're making a podcast. So with people making podcasts, video blogs, writing, yeah. people sh- sharing, I think people's creative juices are flowing a little bit more in 2019 because they've got more avenues to to go down in order to to do it and i suppose i'm not saying everyone writes for success but what is success to people it's it's whatever you know we've talked about it before with the show success for us is the fact that we we do it because before we started doing the podcast we would just ring each other and have this very same conversation anyway we just thought why don't we do it and share it and just see if we can create a community that you know has a similar outlook that we do for others, it might be having a million subscribers or whatever. 
yeah I, but you're right maybe that was a reason why people couldn't connect to connect mm. to it in 2000 I just, yeah just thinking on, on the the scale at which you have to connect in order to be able to make money back on a project oh like this. yeah yeah no absolutely yeah. i mean there you know there are untold so much creative output is it predicated on the difficulty of creating something uh, I mean, how many times has Stephen King written a book about a novelist? How many times has uh, cinema made a film about how hard it is to make a film? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. To, but I just, I wondered whether that maybe stopped it from being the, the level of crossover hit that it would need to be, that maybe people did, like I did, look at it and just think, I really want to see, you know, <laughs> how fucking hard it is to, um, to follow up this book which like attained a level of success that most human beings would never see in their lives you know that yeah no no it's a fair point and you know what when you mention that now potentially that was in uh, curtis hansen's mind you know he's just come off the biggest success of his career in la confidential yeah maybe there's a reason why he was attracted to this to this story is that maybe he was thinking how do i follow up that um so yeah maybe there's something in it but it's interesting, though, isn't it? And and if if anything, I do think this is a worthwhile endeavor to uh, to watch Wonder Boys, if only for the performances. Yeah. But I I get far more out of it than just that just the performances. But you know, it, uh, for an hour and forty five minutes, it's a really enjoyable ride. It's funny. It's touching. Yeah. You know, I I think it's well worth your time. It's just you have got a. Yeah, you've got to put the effort in to try and find it. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the problem. So, Devlin, I think I've just kind of inadvertently given my summary. What about you? What do you would you recommend Wonder Boys for, for our listeners? I'm concerned that this might sound like I'm damning it with thin praise. And no, 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 really no, by not, all means. Um, it's a very pleasant film. And I think that, that that sounds like the sort of thing that you'd say if you just wanted to pat something on the head and uh and dismiss it as being adequate and i don't think that's the case i think there's a certain type of film where when you watch it you enjoy hanging out in it mm. um i think like the quint you mentioned uh earlier um francis mcdormand in the same year in uh almost famous almost famous is a much bigger scope film but that's like the perfect hangout film well yeah me and you both love it and i think yeah, yeah we still we still haven't done our trip around the states together but we we talked about it many times after watching almost famous <laughs> um or, or so there, there are films like that where they're just they're, they're really just pleasant to spend time in and with um and i can see why this film kind of would fall under that category and uh, i think we did a lot of that around this area like early part of film school i think um you know, you're, you're displaced, you're away from home for one of the first times in your life for an extended period. You have to be confronted with this slightly daunting challenge of basically deciding what the rest of your adult life is going to be like mm-hmm. to some extent. Um, so I can totally see why a film like this would be quite a, like an, almost like a, a comfort blanket, you know? Yeah, you you took the words right out of my mouth. It is. Yeah. It's like a it's like a warm blanket that you can wrap around yourself and uh, and snuggle up into. It's uh, yeah. I think uh, I think you've perfectly surmised uh, my my feelings towards Wonder Boys as well. It's just uh, I think I've probably got a little bit more. Uh, it is that whole rose tinted glasses nostalgic feel about yeah. it as well. And I, I have a longing for this type of film again. I'm. It's been a while since I've watched a film 
like Wonder Boys that has um, yeah that's hit me in the in the sweet spot. So yeah, for those of you who are interested in Wonder Boys, uh, it is available to rent and buy on Amazon Prime. It always feels like it's Amazon Prime. Trust me, we are not sponsored by them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> always Amazon Prime. Uh, you can also get a copy of the DVD from HMV. I, I did myself. It was five quid, and I fully, fully recommend that you would uh, go out and purchase it and enjoy it. And uh, if you do go out and watch it, please get in touch with us uh, on Twitter and let us know what you thought. We would love to hear it. So, Devlin, we'll say our goodbye, shall we? We will indeed. Uh, this is Devlin in London signing off. Thanks very much for listening. And it's Galley in Glasgow also signing off. Again, thanks for listening, and we will catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast. Shadows are falling, and I've been here all day. It's too hot to sleep, and time is running away. Feel like my soul has. Turn into steel I've still got the scars But the sun in me There's not even room enough To be anywhere It's not dark yet But it and my sense of humanity has gone down the drain behind every beautiful thing there's been some kind of pain she wrote me a letter she wrote it so kind She put down in writing What was in her mind I just don't see why I should even care It's not dark yet